Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for gathering us here under this roof in the midst of friends, brothers and sisters, called together by one spirit in one baptism, by one Lord to study his one and only word. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is to do that. We know that others in the body who would long to have that opportunity sometimes do not have it. While many around the world, Father, who could do it, neglect it. And, Father, we know that you have appointed it to us for, in your word, Father, we find all things necessary for life and godliness. And it is our hope, Father, that we would take what you've provided, making the most of it to your glory, so that we may please you. For we know one day, Father, we must stand before you as the church judged for our service, not for our sin, but nonetheless, Father, accountable to you, to Christ for how we serve. We ask, Father, that today would be one day among many where we would be properly prepared so that in that day to come we will hear the words we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We've been spending a number of weeks now studying what I've called the kingdom program. Yes, we're in chapter 10. Thank you very much. All right. So we have understood a number of things so far. We've understood that our objective is to find lost sheep. We're clear on the message. Preach the kingdom of God. Preach the gospel. And we've got a pretty good idea on the method of how we reach people through these things. Last week we took a look at the results, as I called it. That is, how has Christ asked us to consider the results of our work in this area? And Jesus said we start by inquiring who is worthy. But remember we learned last week that Jesus did not mean who is worthy to receive the gospel, because after all, no one is worthy to receive the gospel. That's why it comes by grace. But Jesus meant we need to see who is worthy to receive our time, who is worthy to receive our attention, because we're looking for the person in whom the Spirit is already working. We're looking for someone that the Spirit is preparing for us. And then Jesus said, when you find that person, make an initial assessment of whether or not this person is likely to receive the gospel message in that moment. And you do that, he said, by giving your spiritual greeting, some opening, some conversation, something that will encourage a response. And if the person's response is encouraging, then you pursue them further, hoping ultimately to bring them to the truth of the gospel. And if they agree with the gospel, well, then you have the role of helping them walk with Christ, at least for a time. Now, after last week's sermon, someone asked me how much persuasion is appropriate on our part when we're trying to bring someone to faith in Jesus. Because they said, well, you're following the Spirit in all of this, right? He leads you to the opportunities. So is it wrong for us to press someone into believing in the gospel? Well, the answer is, no, it's not wrong. There is a place for persuasion. But just like everything else in the kingdom program, it requires that we follow the Spirit. I I want you to think back to a moment from last week when I talked about a metal detector versus a, a shovel. Remember that analogy I gave us for how we understand the sampling or the testing of results? How do we get a sense of whether God is moving in a moment? And in my analogy, I compared the Spirit's leading of us to a lost sheep, someone who is being prepared to receive the gospel. I compared that to the signals that come from a metal detector if you're looking for something underground. As you sweep the ground, you get signals that tell you there might be something there. And similarly, the Spirit, as He prepares hearts around us, doing the real work, He will give us signals that tell us that might be a person, that might be a place, that might be a time. Those signals will generally take the form of 
uh, responsiveness on someone's part to a spiritual conversation or a willingness to engage in some discussion about Jesus. Something that tells you, I might have an opportunity here. There's something here. When you get that opportunity, you, you put your metal detector aside, at least for a time, and you pick up your shovel, and now you start digging. And that's where persuasion comes in. That's where the push comes in. That's where you answer objections. That's where you make your best case for Christ with that shovel, so to speak, while you've got their attention because they showed interest. But even then, you've got to still listen for the signals of the Spirit, right? It's kind of like you have a shovel in one hand and you have this metal detector in the other. You go for a while, then you pause, and you kind of take a reading again. You know, as long as they keep giving you positive responses, you have no reason to walk away. Keep going. But if they go cold, you know, if they lose interest, if they argue, if they walk off, well, okay. Dust off your sandals. Time to move on. Let's look for where else the Spirit may be working. That's what Paul did. And there's one verse that Paul writes in one of his letters to Corinth, the second letter to Corinth in the Bible, where he sums up this in such a beautiful way in one verse. I couldn't help but offer it to you today out of 2 Corinthians 5.20. Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now look what he did there. He says, first, I serve as an ambassador of Christ. God's making the appeal through me. It's not me. Paul knew he wasn't in control. He knew that Christ determines the result. Paul understood he was just an ambassador. But nonetheless, when Paul found a receptive audience, like he did in Corinth, what does he say? He says, I picked up my shovel. He says, I beg you. Now the word beg there in Greek, it could be translated pleaded. It could be translated implored. It can even be translated prayed. That gives you a good sense, right? Paul didn't just deliver the gospel casually. Let's see if you're interested. Jesus is Lord. Jesus died. What do you think of that? You know? That's how I imagine, by the way, that Jonah was probably preaching in Nineveh. You remember that story? After he got spit up by the fish, you know, he's forced to go and he's told to preach. My guess is he didn't put a lot of enthusiasm into it. But the whole city was saved. (laughs) Paul, on the other hand, understood that we play a role as God appoints, and that role is to be his ambassador. But then, as he delivers the gospel message, and as he sees a receptive audience or the potential for one, he did everything in his power to pull them across the line of faith. He tried his best. That is how we unite an awareness of God's sovereignty in the process, and the need to follow His leading with our own best efforts at serving Christ. Don't make one the enemy of the other. Just put them together. That's our model. That's what we learned last week. Remain sensitive to the Spirit. Recognize the Lord's in control. But give Christ your best. All right, that brings us to the point of tonight. Our next major point in this outline I've given you, the one that's on the back of your bulletin, and I've called this one our mindset. It's found in Matthew 10, verse 16. So let's read that. It's one verse tonight, I'm afraid, but plenty there. Verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, there you have it. I'm calling this our mindset, but you know, you could also label this our enemy because this is the step in the kingdom program that we're looking at that involves obtaining a certain understanding that your work will be opposed by a powerful adversary. It's the mindset that that recognizes your opposition, on the other hand, is not those you're trying to reach with the gospel. Your enemies are not those who hate you. Your enemies are not those who hate Jesus, not even those who hate Christianity. They're not your enemies. In fact, you do not fight against any human being whatsoever when it comes to the program 
of the kingdom, because in reality, you're fighting for everyone with this message as God appoints, right? Now, what Paul says, and in fact, in Ephesians 6.12, he says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Probably a verse many of you have heard. Paul says, when we struggle in the work of the kingdom program, you're not struggling against human beings. In fact, he says flesh and blood, which would indicate not just people, but not even animals. There is no physical creature that stands opposed to the gospel. Not in the sense that that's our enemy. He says you've got to look past them. You've got to look at something that's spiritual. An enemy that is of a dark spiritual nature. And of course, we know who he's talking about. He's talking about Satan, but also all the demons who follow Satan and do his bidding. That community, if you want to use that term, is your enemy. And of course, Satan is in the business of stopping the kingdom program if he can, by any means necessary. And the reason is simple, because the kingdom program stands opposed to his own goals. Satan's goal has always been, from the time of his fall, to be as God. And so anything that would come along and glorify the true living God opposes his own personal agenda. And that's why, of course, he steps in to stop it. And by the way, nothing glorifies God more than having men and women praising him for his plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. So anytime you and I walk out to win a new citizen for the kingdom, or even just preaching the gospel, that incites the enemy against us. Because you have just gone headlong straight into somewhere he does not want to see you go. That's the enemy that we face. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He wants us to be spiritually, mentally, and emotionally prepared to meet that opposition so that when we do, we will respond in the right way. He gives us the proper mindset here in verse 16. And that's what we're studying today. What is my mindset? What do I have to have as an attitude, an outlook, when I go out into the kingdom program because I know there's an enemy out there? Now, as we study this verse, we're going to look at this verse today in three parts, sort of like we did back in verse 7, because there's three sections here. And part one of this verse is the whole first half. That's where Jesus says he sends his disciples out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Once again, he's using another of those shepherding metaphors. We've seen this now time and again. And of all the threats that a shepherd would have faced in Jesus' day, in the work of caring for flocks in the field, probably the greatest threat was attack by predators. Wolves, in this case, as an example, they attack quickly. They're violent attackers. They come in packs, as you know. They move quietly. They get into position. They attack quickly. They're vicious. Before you know it, a sheep is gone. And while they're attacking, what happens to all the rest of the sheep? Oh, they're scattered. Now a shepherd's got to go find all the rest of them, right? It's chaos. And to make matters worse, typically in that day, a shepherd was financially responsible for the loss of any sheep under his care that would be taken by predators. So every time a sheep was taken, that was money out of his pocket. So when Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, they immediately recognized what he was saying, at least in the simple sense of the metaphor. He was saying, you're going to face real danger in the kingdom program. There is a fierce and a determined enemy who is going to prey on you, on the sheep. Moreover, he says, you're going to be defenseless like sheep, which means, of course, you're going to have to depend on the Lord for your protection. Nonetheless, in the course of time, you should expect to see some losses. The enemy's going to get his, his hits. He's going to get his points along the way. That's how Jesus describes going out to do the kingdom program. You all just a little less enthusiastic about this now? Two weeks ago, you couldn't wait to get out there, right? But if we're going to be diligent 
in what he's asked us to do, if we're going to be effective in what he's asked us to do, we have to begin in recognizing there will be opposition. And I know this doesn't surprise you to hear me say that. I mean, I think anybody who would have walked into this kind of a church would have been quick to acknowledge, oh yeah, Satan opposes us. That's not the surprise. But even though we say that, what I have found is when those attacks actually happen to us, we're not ready. Oh, I thought that only happened to spiritual people. I thought that only happened to you know other people. Or we don't even recognize it. We think it's the person, right? We think we're warring against flesh and blood. We don't see the enemy and his fingerprints. We have to understand, you and I, as we do the kingdom program, we operate behind enemy lines. We are playing on the enemy's field. This is his home territory, the earth, I'm saying. And you cannot be naive about him, and you cannot be cavalier about what Jesus is warning us to be prepared about. You can't. He puts us on notice, and he does that so that you won't be surprised, you won't complain, and you won't give up. He doesn't want us to act foolishly. He doesn't want us to stumble into danger without counting the cost. In other words, you're not going to see Satan behind every corner necessarily, but you're certainly going to experience his displeasure if you are obedient. Remember, Jesus says it elsewhere in the gospel. He says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And then he says, woe to those who say good things about you, but blessed are those who are persecuted, right? In other words, if you as a Christian can walk through your life and never experience the attack of the enemy, do you know what that suggests? It suggests that he doesn't need to bother with you because you have taken yourself out of the game. Because you're not a threat, because how you live your life, how you devote your time to Jesus, doesn't pose much of a challenge to him. He needs to spend his time on other people. Now, I'm not saying you go seeking for persecution. I'm not saying that's uh, necessarily our end goal, What I am suggesting, though, is if the idea of of the enemy opposing you in some kind of meaningful way is not something you're very comfortable with and you have no experience with it, it could be, in part, a result that you just haven't got engaged in the fight yet. But if you are engaged, you will see him in some form at some time. Because that's what he does. Now, before we look at the mindset, as he calls it here, as I call it, I want to address a couple of misconceptions that I have found coming out of verse 16 in the minds of those in the church. I've run into it. I'm sure it's out there. First, some will tell you, or they assume, that Jesus is willingly sending his disciples out as sheep among wolves because our faith in him, in Jesus, has rendered us untouchable by Satan. Have you heard that? Or in some version of that? I mean, some people will tell you that if you have faith in Jesus, that that faith, your relationship with Jesus, has given you power and authority and dominion over Satan. You may hear Christians saying things like, I bind Satan, or I rebuke Satan, or in the name of Jesus. And they have all these things they say they do. They put hedges of protection around people with us. You know, whatever that phraseology is, in our mind, we're commanding these things to happen. Because we want them to happen. And because we throw out what we think the right words are to make them happen. And some will go as far as to assume that we are, and I've heard this phrase, conquerors of Satan, as if the sheep are more powerful than the wolves. Look, that kind of thinking is ignorant, and it's naive, and in some cases arrogant. But most of all, it just plays right into the enemy's hands. He loves it when you think that. It helps him to have you be overconfident in thinking you have power where you don't actually have it. Obviously, Jesus did not say, I send you as sheep into wolves in order to embolden us and reassure us they can't hurt you. That would be a nonsensical metaphor if he meant it that way, right? We would be the wolves, they would, you know, Satan would be the sheep if that's what he meant. 
But more importantly, the Bible teaches us clearly that we are not more powerful than Satan. In fact, did you know that the Bible says there is no created thing that is as powerful as Satan is? Nothing in God's creation is equal to Satan's power. You read that in Ezekiel 28. But I want you to listen to what Jude, in his letter, had to say about those who would claim that you have power over Satan. Jude 8. He says, in the same way these men, speaking of false teachers, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him, Satan, a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men, they revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things, they are destroyed. In Jude's day, there were false teachers in the church who, among other things, were downplaying the power of Satan. They were mocking Satan. And Jude says they were guilty of reviling angelic majesties. That was his term. He's referring to Satan and his demonic forces. They reviled him. Now, you might look at that and you go, well, wait a minute, Satan's the bad guy. What's wrong with reviling him? Well, you have to remember, Satan may be the source of all evil and the father of lies, but he is still an angel of great power, according to the Bible. And therefore, his angelic majesty, if you want to use the term Jude uses, that demands respect, at least in the sense that you don't underestimate his power, that you don't take him for granted. In fact, Jude even says Satan is so powerful that not even the great archangel Michael dared to oppose him directly. I mean, that dispute over Moses' body, which is a bit of an of a odd reference we don't have time for, but in some dispute they were having, Michael refused to speak a word against Satan. He left it to God to rebuke Satan. Do you know why? Because God made Satan so powerful that nothing else in creation has the power to oppose Satan except the one who created him, God himself. So don't be foolish. Don't be fooled into thinking that your faith in Jesus has suddenly made you a superhero And that you can walk out of here with magic words and Satan just cowers in a corner somewhere. That's not real life, friends. That's cartoonish. That's the first misconception. Second misconception floating around in the church says that God will simply always defend you from Satan's attacks. That he'll never let Satan harm you. That's kind of the hedge of protection thing that people talk about. Now that sounds really appealing. And certainly God does protect us in some ways and to some degree. But to say that he always does, that's wrong. That's wrong. On the contrary, Scripture says Satan will have opportunities to oppose us, to attack us, even to defeat us on earth, at least in that sense. And again, the Bible is filled with this truth. And I think probably the most classic story that illustrates this is the book of Job, right? Many of you know that book. I'm sure many of you have heard the name Job or know something of the story. Remember, he's the guy that suffered through a series of terrible attacks brought by Satan. If you don't know the story, this is a guy that the Bible describes as a righteous man. He was a man of great wealth. He had a large home. He had a lot of servants. He had a big business. He had lots of children. He he was living high and living large. right? And on one day, in the course of one 24-hour day, Satan attacked Job and took all of it. He killed all of Job's children. He stole all of his livestock, killed all his servants, ruined his livelihood, even destroyed his house. And then, if that weren't enough, he inflicted Job with painful sores over his entire body. So that then, at the end of it, Job's cursing the day he was born. But he never cursed God. He said at one point, Though you slay me, yet I will still praise your name. 
Job is a classic example of the Lord permitting the enemy to attack despite our faithfulness. No, in fact, because of our faithfulness, he became the subject of that attack. But you know what a lot of Christians overlook in that story? They overlook how Job's name got introduced into the story in the first place. How Satan came to even know of Job. You read this in Job 1.8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, blameless and upright man, God-fearing and turning away from evil. Wow. Satan was off doing something else, and God said, Hey, check this dude out. Think about that for a minute. The Lord was the one who brought Job to Satan's attention, which then led to Satan's attacks. What you're learning is that not only does the Lord permit the enemy's attack from time to time, the Lord causes those attacks. Now, clearly, the enemy is an agent. The enemy does the work. It's the enemy's sin, not God's. But God harnesses that. He uses it. He directs it. We see that clearly in Job 1. And God, in his own words, in Isaiah 45, 6, says this, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me, that I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Look, there's only one God. There's only one power, only one God, only one sovereign. The devil is not like you know, mini-God, and they're like in a battle, and we're kind of waiting to see who wins. He's just a created being. God could snuff him out with an instant. He's just there for purposes of God's glory in the long run. God's the only God. And therefore, we must understand that when Jesus says, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves, he's saying, this is part of my plan, that you will have this opposition for a time and in certain ways, and it is for your spiritual good. It's a test. It's a trial, which the Bible says has as its result good outcomes for us. You know the classic place in Scripture you go for this, right? James, James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And then he tells you why you can count it as joy. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, I love the way he starts this because it really sets your mind in a different path. He says, consider it joy. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say feel joy because you won't. I guarantee you Job didn't, right? Not at the beginning. He's not, he's not Pollyannish. He's not saying, oh, just put on a good attitude. No, 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 no. He knows suffering is suffering. He says, count it joy. Consider it joy. What he means is, count your circumstances in those moments as joy because in a day to come, the result of your enduring through those moments will be joy. This is one of these classic eyes for eternity passages. You know, I use that phrase all the time, right? Eyes have eyes for eternity. It's a way of saying, understand things from God's point of view. And this is one of these classic passages that if you don't have eyes for eternity, you will not understand James 1. You'll try, but it makes no sense. I mean, think about it. James says, as we endure trials, we will receive a result that is leaving us perfect, lacking in nothing. But that statement in earthly terms makes no sense. It makes no sense. What good is it that I get hurt? What good is it that I suffer? How does that help me now? It just makes my life here miserable. I've only got a few years anyway. Why have any of it be bad? Right? That's an earthly point of view. 
Which leads to things like prosperity gospels where we try to tell people that no, God doesn't want you to suffer. No, God doesn't want you to be poor or have sickness. That can't be what God wants. And they just ignore the pages of the Bible when they teach you that. Right? That's not true. James says that when we endure trials in faith, we have an opportunity through those experiences to be sanctified, to be made perfect. And as you become more spiritually mature, that gives opportunity for reward in the kingdom. All right? So in other words, as you face a trial, he says, count it as joy because what the Lord has done is he has granted you this tremendous opportunity to earn gain in the kingdom. Isn't that great? You've just learned, you've gained an opportunity to receive something eternal. Count that as joy. Now, you can only gain that, though, if you endure it properly. You have to endure it, and you have to endure it with a godly attitude. So if you're to receive these benefits, you've got to be prepared. You have to look at these trials, these attacks, the enemy and his opposition as opportunity to endure, to show myself worthy to Christ for the reward that he might offer for my good service, to make sure that I gain all the reward of maturity out of it. You know, when you quit trials, when you run away from difficulties, you know what you lose? The opportunity to grow and be rewarded for it. There's not going to be one less person in the kingdom because you didn't do your job. God's going to get them saved. You haven't hurt anybody but yourself. But that's why the Bible keeps holding out this opportunity for us. Join the Lord, work with Him, serve Him, enter into the joy of your Master because you've worked to serve Him. And so what Jesus says is, you're surrounded by Satan and his demons, be prepared. Don't let that discourage you. Don't play into his hands. Don't give up on the first sign of trouble. Take advantage of those opportunities to endure and build strength. I like to think of Jesus' warning here in the first half of verse 16 as a little like the warnings you get from doctors or dentists. God love them. I know they were all taught to say this in school, but when they tell you, look, I've got a needle or something, it's going to sting a little. You ever heard them say that? That's, you know what that's code for? This is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot. And I'm secretly taking some pleasure in the fact that you're going to... No, that part's me. I, I just That's just how I think. But you know why they do that, right? They do that to get you ready. It's a way of helping you prepare mentally for in that little brief moment to help you kind of prepare, to kind of get ready. It might hurt a little bit, all right? But that's so that you get through it, right? So that you're better prepared to handle it. Not surprised, not taken off guard by it. Well, that's what Jesus is saying in the first half of verse 16. He starts, you notice the verse starts with the word behold. In Greek, that means pay attention, take note, right? He's saying, take note. You're going to face opposition. Don't be surprised. Be prepared. Learn how to deal with it. Which brings us to part two of the verse, which is how you deal with it. How do you prepare? I mean, how do you get ready to face a creature that is more powerful than anything else in creation? Well, Jesus says, number one, the next part of this verse, he says, be as shrewd as a serpent. Now, the Greek word translated there as serpent, ophis in Greek, it's the common Greek word for snake. If you were to see a snake on the ground and you spoke ancient Greek, you'd say ophis. Right? In fact, you could have translated this verse that way. You could have translated it out of the Greek as be as shrewd as a snake. And in fact, if you have an NIV, that's what you're reading right now because that's how the NIV does it. But most English translators have rendered it as serpent, not as snake, because they correctly recognize that Jesus is alluding to something here when he says serpent or snake. He's not complimenting the intelligence of snakes. I mean, snakes are far less intelligent than many other animals, certainly less intelligent than humans. In fact, I think they're probably second only to poodles as far as stupidity in animals goes. But he's not talking about literal snakes. 
That's not his point. He's alluding to something. What do you, and you know what he's alluding to, right? What's the wisest creature God ever made, according to Ezekiel 28 again? Satan. And where do we see sna- Satan hooked up with a snake for a while? Well, chapter 3 of Genesis, remember? In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent, there's the word again, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, now what we know of that story, of course, is that it was Satan indwelling a snake in the Garden of Eden so that he could approach a woman and deceive her into eating the forbidden fruit. All right? The serpent in the garden, we're, we're told in Genesis 3, was the craftiest, the, the, the shrewdest beast in the field. Now, that, what that's saying is not that the snake is better than other animals. It's alluding again to the fact that for that one moment... You had this unique situation in which the smartest, most intelligent creature in all creation happened to be in that snake. For that moment, that was the shrewdest animal in all the field. It's a negative way of saying it had special knowledge. It, it was evil. Elsewhere after that, you always hear the Bible talking about the serpent of old, Satan. It's one and the same now. So Jesus is telling us, you've got to be as shrewd as Satan. That doesn't sound right, does it? You know, it just feels like that's a wrong comparison for us. Shrewd means wise, it means discerning, it means being thoughtful and informed. It's kind of the opposite of naive or the opposite of foolish. But in this case, why didn't he say, be as wise as your grandfather, be as wise as Solomon? Be as... Why didn't he say that? Why did he choose serpent? Here's why, friends, because it's more than just being wise. He uses Satan as the comparison here because you don't just learn how to be wise in some generic way. He's telling us, be wise concerning Satan. Be wise about him. Know of him. Learn his tactics. Learn how to work around them. Understand your enemy. That's what the implication here is. Wise in a general sense, yes, but more than that, as wise as Satan is, as smart as your enemy in what he does and in how he does it. You have to be creative. You have to take advantage of what you know about him and what he does and how he works. And yes, Satan may be the wisest creature God ever made, but he has patterns. He has preferred methods. He knows what he's doing, and you can kind of see it if you look for it. I can illustrate this with a simple story. It's about an older gentleman, a retired man, who was dealing with rowdy teenagers in his neighborhood. And this guy, his home happened to be near a junior high school. And as one particular school year began... Two or three kids from that school just started on this habit of coming down his street every day as they left school, banging on all the trash cans that were set out front, in front of his house, and down the street, right? And, and as they bang on them, uh, they, would, they would damage them. They were metal, and so they made noise, and they got dented, and it just goes on day after day as they come home from school. So the man thought, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to take care of this problem. He walks out of the boys on one day, and he says, hey, guys, it looks like you're having a lot of fun. I love this. I think this is great. Tell you what, if you promise to keep doing this every day, I'll pay you a dollar a day for doing this. And the kids are like, whoa, that's, that's awesome. I mean, getting paid to do what they wanted to do anyway. Sure, we'll do that. So that went on for a few days. And then after a few days, he comes out, meets them, and says, you know, it's kind of been hard this week. I'm, my budget's stretched. Uh, I'm going to have to cut my fee. It's 50 cents this week. And the kids are like, well, all right, I guess so. And they move on. A few more days later, he comes out and he says, look, I haven't had my Social Security check this week. And I'm strapped. I think the best I'm doing this week is 25 cents, guys. And the kid says, measly quarter. We're not doing this for a quarter. We're out of here. I'm done with this. Right? And it's a cute story. But it, you know what else I like about it? It's a great illustration of how we're supposed to find creative ways to combat the chaos and the opposition of the enemy. Kind of like judo. Turn the force back against him. 
And there are things we can do. I know he's stronger. I know he's wiser. It doesn't mean we don't have opportunity. For example, I know of mission teams, missionaries, who travel into dangerous places in the world, into nations where the culture is dead set against the gospel. These are places where traditional Christian evangelism cannot happen. Uh, they just won't allow it. And you'd be persecuted, and jailed, kicked out of the country. You just you can't do it. And so how do you get into a country like that? That's Satan, right? That's Satan working through human beings to accomplish his end, right? Our war is not against the people. Our war is against Satan. But he set up the barrier. What do we do with that? Well, these missionaries realized that these countries were very open and welcoming to uh, businessmen, Western businessmen, who came to do business in their country because they wanted the wealth. And so what these missionaries did, this is a true story, what they did was they were as shrewd as a serpent. They decided to travel under the cover of businessmen. They entered into the country to buy and sell goods. They printed business cards. They carried briefcases full of, of, of product samples. Uh, they even put together websites so that if the immigration authorities did a random check, they could say, oh, yeah, you have a company online. You have, you have a website. And then as they moved around the country, these businessmen naturally would make contacts, right? Coffee shops, uh, marketplaces, uh, hotels, taxi cabs, airports, whatever. And as they made those contacts, what did they start doing? The kingdom program. They would look to see who was worthy. They would introduce themselves with a greeting that was spiritual. They would look for results in the moment. If there was some interest, they would get a positive result. They'd press a little further. They'd go as far as they thought they could. They were shrewd. They understood. They had wolves all around them. At any moment, they could make a misstep. They're kicked out of the country. They can't come back. All right? That's the idea here. And in our own country, in our own life, we have the same opportunity. Don't play into the enemy's hands. And I'll give you some simple examples. You know, in most ministries, there's typically a rule that men in ministry, uh, like a pastor or someone else, don't meet with women one-on-one in a private setting. And we do that just, obviously, to not give the enemy opportunity. That's being shrewd. You have churches that do background checks on everyone in ministry. That's just being shrewd. You know, you might be in a workplace and you want to preach to your coworker about Jesus, but that place you work may not be very accommodating. They may not be very receptive to religion conversations in the workplace. So you just keep a low profile. You do it in quiet corners. The point is, you're thinking carefully about the fact that you've got an enemy watching at any point. You're not going to give him any advantage. And when I travel, I travel to Muslim countries to teach the Bible. And these are places where you have to be careful. And so I have to watch what I say about Islam, which is generally nothing. Uh, because if I made the wrong thing and it's reported back to the authorities, next time I try to come into the country, they won't let me come. Right? Being shrewd. I call this approach the James Bond mindset. It's, it's my own way of thinking about it, right? You're working like a secret agent behind enemy lines. And I think that's essentially the mindset Jesus is calling us to take, right? I, I personally, I find this to be the most fascinating part of the kingdom program. This is the part that kind of gets me excited. I love the cat and mouse game. I, lo- I love the, the working behind enemy lines, the matching wits with the enemy. You know, this, this idea that we can kind of, kind of have that excitement in our life. And I, I don't want to trivialize it here. This is not a game. And we're not going to hold a candle to his power and wisdom. I'm not saying that. But friends, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So if you are working in the Spirit's counsel in these moments, it doesn't turn you into a superhero. What it does tell you, though, is how to move shrewdly through the obstacles, around the opposition, and where you need to go. Like I said, James Bond, behind enemy lines. So the Bible does tell us to respect the enemy's power, but it does not tell us to fear him. In fact, the Bible commands us not to fear him. Fear is paralyzing. Fear puts you out of the game. 
What you do is you go out into a world full of wolves with wisdom and discernment, knowing there's an enemy, prepared to face him, walk by the Spirit, navigate the traps and the pitfalls, and just don't shoot yourself in the foot. That's being wise as a serpent. Which brings us to the final part. Jesus says, you also have to be as innocent as a dove. Now look, just like the term serpent was chosen because of the allusion to Satan, well, so too did Christ choose the dove so that he could represent something greater. And who do you think that is? Right? In Scripture, what does a dove often represent? Holy Spirit, right? So what he's effect saying is, be as innocent as God. Or we could simply say, do not sin. But more than that, learn the Spirit's ways. Just as we have to learn the enemies, learn how God works. You know, this idea that you're looking for where the Spirit is moving. Look, let me tell you, if you do this for a while, and with some thoughtfulness and with some you know, observation skills, you know what you're going to find? There's a pattern to the way God works as well. And you will become even more nuanced in finding those people who are, quote, worthy. And that's what he's asking you to do. So it's a combination of being sinless in the sense that we do things in innocence, not in sin. But it's also to the point of what God's methods are, following his plan. We go about in that way. So now, obviously, you could tell me, well, Steve, the Bible tells us not to sin already. That's not news. And certainly that is true, right? How can those of us who have died to sin still live in it, Paul would say. But besides that, what you're learning is, it's not just the mere fact that you sin and that, that's a problem. The problem in this context is your sin is actually going to get in the way of the kingdom program. Think about it. All of us have sin, right? None of us are perfect. And so that, that, that means that clearly Jesus isn't saying you have to be perfect to do the kingdom program. But here's the problem. He's saying it's not just the existence of sin in your life that's going to be an issue in this case. The problem is your lifestyle will come into conflict with your message. That's the problem. If you're not careful, when you reach out to some lost sheep, but do it in a dishonest way or in an unloving way or without taking care to, to crucify your flesh and deal with your own sin... Do you know what you do at that moment? We have a word for somebody who says one thing and does another, and you know what that word is. It's called a hypocrite, right? I think every human being, by nature, is wired for hypocrisy. We see it coming. It's just sort of built into our... We can tell when someone's not being genuine to what they say, right? And how do you feel about someone when you look at them, and they want to teach you, they want to tell you something, they want to help you in some way, and yet you can see hypocrisy written all over them? What does that tell you? I can't learn from this person. They have nothing to offer me. They're the sick person who's trying to be a physician. right? It, it, you see it and you turn off. That's the problem. When someone sees you preaching the kingdom of God and, and Jesus and salvation and all the rest, and then they look at your life and you're living in unrepentant sin or in the methods you're using to reach them, you are violating laws and you are working against the culture in, in, in offensive ways, they turn you off at that point. And notice how Jesus has put these two commands next to each other. He says, be as shrewd as Satan, but be as innocent as God. And that's how we have to guide our thinking and our behavior in this whole program. When you go out to reach the lost, use every trick there is in the book. Every scheme you can imagine. I mean, every tool at your disposal. Don't hold back. Just don't cross the line into sin. And almost always, it's a pretty clear line. Sometimes that line can be difficult, but... Usually not. I want you to think back to my example. I bet there are some in here that were thinking as I talked about the, the Christians who went into these countries posing as businessmen. Did some of you start to wonder, well, 
Is that lying? Right? Well, it could be. It absolutely could be in violation of this principle. And the missionaries themselves that I mentioned, they recognized that fact. And they were determined to obey Matthew ten sixteen. So you know what they did? In order to be able to represent themselves honestly as businessmen, they started businesses. Remember I talked about the product samples and the websites? It wasn't a sham. They were starting real businesses. One guy, I think, had a t-shirt printing business. Another guy had a consulting business. Someone else had an advertising business. And they were businesses in every sense of the word. They even sold some things to some of the customers that they met when they were in some of these countries. You know, you want a t-shirt here? Ten bucks, take it, right? But, of course, they put almost no time into their business. They didn't care if it made any money. I mean, there's a way you can have a business, and then there's a way you can have a business, right? That's what I mean when I say, or what I think what Jesus means when he says, shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. There's space between there. There's opportunity in there. In the end, what those missionaries could do is honestly declare they were businessmen, honestly say they were there to do business, and while they were there to do business, they did the Lord's business. That's what we should be doing. Finally, you need to also understand that when he says be innocent as a dove, He is talking about our personal life of sin. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this to sort of wrap up tonight. And and that's just the obvious, I hope obvious point, that if you let sin take hold in your life, if you don't deal with it as Christ has called you to do, do you know the enemy is going to use it? He's going to use it. Men and women in ministry, and I'm not just talking paid professional ministry, I'm talking about anywhere in the pantheon of ministry, men and women throughout the centuries have seen their opportunities to serve the kingdom lost, ruined, disgraced, discredited by sin. And we've all seen the stories, right? Pastors cheating on wives with church secretaries, not happening here. Elders taking money out of the building fund to buy a nice car, might happen here. Um, just uh, I mean, I'm, it's not funny. I mean, obviously these are serious things that happen. Youth leaders compromised with their students, associate pastors lying about their background on resumes. And it's, it's just this pattern in which we do things and we think. And I know this is true. I mean, whether you're on church staff or whether you're just an individual Christian in the church, it doesn't make any difference. We all think we have these secret sins. I say we think we have them because we think they're secret. And maybe they are from other people, but that doesn't mean they're secret from the people that matter most. To the, that is God, of course, Christ. He knows about them. But you know who else knows? I don't think you've ever thought about this. Most of you haven't. Do you know the demons are everywhere? And they report back. And they find out things. And then they decide how they can use those things. His agents are everywhere. And you know what? I can't tell you when and how this will happen. I can't promise it will happen or won't happen. I don't know what their plans are, but I know it's happening because you can see it happening. Secrets being discovered. Shame being exposed. Spiritual weaknesses being exploited. The enemy loves to do that. If you give him something to handle, he will take it. If you let him do that, I like to compare it to this. It's like taking a loaded gun, cocking the hammer, pointing the barrel at yourself, and handing it to Satan. That's what it means to live an unrepentant sin on a regular basis while trying to serve Christ and thinking the two can kind of go on at the same time. Maybe for a while. Maybe till you die. I don't know. Christ will reckon with you at that point. But what will happen for many is in the meantime, Satan decides, well, we can use that. And he finds a way to get that information to where it needs to be. He'll tell your spouse somehow. He'll share that news with your boss somehow. 
or your pastor or the IRS. Right? I mean, whatever it is we're doing is opportunity for the enemy. And just like that, you're sidelined from the kingdom program. That's what I think he also means when he says be innocent as a dove. It's not just about knowing how to do ministry right. It's about how to be right so that you can do ministry. How are you going to respond to this week's message? You know, every week I've asked, what are we going to do with this, right? Obviously, we need to develop wisdom in the face of the enemy. Obviously, we need to double down on our efforts to keep away from sin. I mean, I hope that's obvious. But let me give you just a simple way to get started. I want you to spend this next week and onward from there. Just try to observe how the enemy is at work in opposing the kingdom. If you just become sensitive to this, if you make it part of your daily walk, do I see the enemy here? You know, some scene, some situation, some chaos, some activity, something happens and you, you know, if you just stand back for a second, you go, that's Satan. Man, it's, it's as if he's got a neon sign right over the top of that. Here I am. Now, here's what I found will happen if you do that. If you do that routinely, if you're good at that, um, if you, like, if you're telling a coworker about Jesus, you know what often happens when you're doing that? Right in the middle of that, you're at the point where it's about to happen, you're about to give him the big detail, and then all of a sudden, his phone rings. That noisy coworker comes in and starts talking with you in the conversation. The boss calls him away. Look, look at that with spiritual eyes. I'm not saying Satan's behind every corner. What I'm saying, though, is don't assume those things are coincidence, because I'm telling you, it won't be most of the time. Most of the time, Satan just decided, oh, got to interrupt that. Hey, send Barney over there. Interrupt him. And you think that's a joke, but that happens. That's how Satan works. You get ready to come. How about this? You get ready to come to church. Wouldn't you know it? That's the moment you get into an argument with your spouse or your kids are disbehaving or something, right? Everybody's looking around like, that never happens to me. Right, sure, whatever. All I'm saying is, is you start to sense those moments. Here's why knowing that is so powerful. Here's why I think Jesus told us to think like this. Because the moment you tell me that the battle I'm facing is the enemy and not my wife, I stop looking at her as the enemy. We start working together. As long as we can both get on that same page, as long as in the moment we can say to ourselves, wait a minute, honey, I know this scene. This is, we understand this right now, don't we? Okay, well, let's not, let's not fight each other. Let's go against him. And the same in the church and the same with friends and the same anywhere. It's the mindset that understands where the real fight is coming from so that you don't fight the wrong people, which is everyone, right? All right, so that's your task this week. Let's get more sensitive to knowing what the Spirit's doing, but also what the enemy's doing, and let's use that information to oppose him and to keep forward on the gospel program, on the kingdom program. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, guide us in our work this week, Father. Give us courage and a heart to do what you've called us to do. Give us opportunity. And give us great testimonies in the week to come about all that we've achieved in your name. Father, I pray a prayer especially for those who are under attack, who have felt the enemy this week, and who know what it feels like to be in that place. And I pray, Father, the attack would end. I pray the defense that you bring would come quickly. And I pray, Father, that the minds and hearts of those who have felt that attack would be directed to kingdom matters, to eternal concerns. And in that, Father, we can all join hands together and celebrate you and the glory of the kingdom that is coming. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.